Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. A safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Greetings, feely earthlings. Welcome to another episode of You, Me, Empathy. Empathy is the key word here. Also, you as well as me. Those three are key. You, me, empathy. That's why it's called that. Hello, my name is Known Wells. This is episode 151. My guest today on the show is Vanessa Bennett. Vanessa is a therapist. She's a yogi. She teaches about mindfulness. She's a coach for codependence. Uh, we talk a lot about codependency on this episode. She actually blows my mind a few mo- a few times, which, you know, I have a lot to learn, of course, as we all do. But uh, specifically around codependency, uh, there's a, a light bulb moment for me, and that was wonderful. And we talk a lot about codependency. We talk about expanding our abilities to tolerate change and the unknown. We talk about not skipping over the messy middle and why you mean why you may need to change your mind about mindfulness and so many other things. Uh, it's a really wonderful episode. Really enjoyed it. Um, before we get to it, though, I wanted to remind you to please leave a rating and review for this podcast in Apple Podcasts. It does truly help out the show. If you enjoy listening, and I know you do, I know it's your favorite. I know it's like, oh gosh, I can't wait for Monday. Monday's here. Oh my gosh, known. I get to hear him and you me empathy and ah, empathy and love. Ah, it feels so good. Uh, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not. I know you like this show. If you're, if you don't like the show, why are you here? All right. Now I'm being all defensive. I love you. I'm glad you're here. I'm so grateful. Please be here. Don't leave. Okay. But seriously, if you can leave, a rating and review of You, Me, Empathy, and Apple Podcasts. Please, please do that. It does truly help out the show. It's a free way to support me. And speaking of ways to support me, I am going to be starting a Patreon page. It's not live yet, but I'm working on it this week. I'm nearing completion of the Patreon, and uh, I'll announce when it's out, but some exciting things like monthly zoom hangs with fellow feely humans and me like merchandise like uh, uh bonus episodes of this very show and other things of that nature so look forward to that and uh if you have any fun patreon ideas let me know i'm all ears you can dm me on instagram at you empathy Make sure to check out all the things Feely Human at feelyhuman.co uh there's some great merch coming soon very excited about but uh, we have a shop we have a place for you to do some writing if you're interested in doing some writing for the feely human collective you can do that i'd love to publish your feely work and 
if you're an artist, want to do an art collaboration, uh, especially if you're a BIPOC artist, I would love to support you and figure out a way to get your wares in my shop and, and level you up and support you if you're an independent artist. Uh, get some more eyeballs on your work. Uh, love to chat at Feely Human on Instagram if you want to DM me or go to feelyhuman.co and uh, check out those things there. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's it. Well, I guess the last thing is today is Monday, November 9th, and just a couple of days ago, uh, Biden and Harris uh, were announced as the the winners. <laughs> the winners. Uh, they, uh, they got the presidency and vice presidency, which feels great, gives me some hope and, uh, yeah, it feels good. And, uh, but it also makes me sad, uh, in some ways, you know, uh, there's, there's tons of work to do. And I, I may in just a couple of days now drop a bonus episode about my feelings around all of that. Cause they're mixed feelings and they're weird feelings and they're all of the feelings. So I'm not going to promise it, but Maybe in a couple of days you'll you'll see a bonus episode on the Yumi Empathy feed. Check out that. Let's let's get to the episode, shall we? Again, this is episode 151 with the very wonderful Vanessa Bennett. Please, please enjoy. I love you. Goodbye. To you, me, empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights, and the darks we face as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of you, me, empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. You, Me, Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm Jazz, doing happy dances in the kitchen or, you know, in the in the bedroom or wherever, just in my house somewhere doing happy dances, because I'm here with associate psychotherapist, codependency coach and co-host of the Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. It's Vanessa Bennett. Hello, Vanessa. Hello. How are you? I am doing, I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm good. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit before we hit record, but a little stressed in the the state of the world environmentally um, and otherwise, but you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. All things considered. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, Vanessa and I both live in the Southern California area. And for you listeners, not in this area, there are fires around <laughs> and the air quality isn't great. And um, I empathize with your position, Vanessa, because I, 
there was a time uh, when we bought our house, fires were near, and maybe a couple of years before that, we had to evacuate horses, our horses, and that mm-hmm. felt like this apocalyptic nightmare. I remember walking one of our horses like down just a residential street, and it felt very weird, and fires are scary. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's even scarier? Because I'm, I'm in the hills, and um, what I'm watching is all the animals that are trying to flee the fires mm. are kind of ending up in our backyards and stuff. So um, yeah. we already have bears, but we've had many. Um, and so I've been putting water out for the birds and the animals. And yeah, it's kind of chaotic, but. Well, I hope, um, you know, I hope, I, I, I guess to the universe, to the firefighters, I hope mm-hmm. uh, we resolve this thing quickly because it's, yeah. uh, you know, fire is one of those things that it's like, it's weird, right? It's like, it's like the sun. It takes, takes life and it, you know, it, it, we also need it, you right. know? Yep. Um, yeah. It's I all, it's it's all chemical, weird. right? It's, yeah. It's important. Um, yeah. And we're also seeing it at kind of an unprecedented scale. Right. It it does kind of like tie into the things that we talk about, especially you talk about as a therapist, like this, this balance of things that we need of the things mm-hmm. that like the sun, like fire, like emotions, right? Like feelings, like we have to respect them. And we can, we also need to like, be curious, we need to have boundaries and all these things. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to like protect ourselves in the midst of it, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, it's important to go there and to kind of stand in the fire and uh, kind of balance that with, you know, self care and knowing your limits and how long can I stand in the fire before I need to step out and give myself a break and all those mm. things. But that's, I think that's a discovery as yeah. you kind of fit, you know, learn about yourself more and more. Absolutely. So uh, we kind of brushed uh, aside it a little bit, but we always kind of kick off the show, Vanessa, with an emotional check-in. Mm-hmm. How, let's just say it, how are you doing in this moment? How are you right now? Mm, well, as of recording, um, I'm feeling well. Um, we are only a day out from Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing. So I will mm. say that um, I have found myself touching the edges of some real uh, sorrow, um, overwhelm, some anxiety. Um, I think it's a collective feeling, at least for um, a good majority of people out there. So I know that I'm not alone in those feelings, but you know, I mean, to be honest, that's, that's definitely what's present for me in this yeah. current moment. Yeah, no, I feel that and rest in power, Ruth. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a tremendous loss that is. She, um, she gave us so much, especially women. Um, yeah, uh, tremendous loss. And I, I'm, I feel that too. Regarding that, does it feel Vanessa like, you know, I, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm guilty of this a little bit. Does it feel like, you know, something like that happens and then we're like, fuck 2020, like Mm -hmm. what is going on? It just feels like too much. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm seeing it obviously on my end too, working with clients and, you know, teaching classes and just gathering in groups and people are feeling definitely at their wits end. Um, you know, I, I, I heard, uh, it was like a post on Instagram. It was kind of joking where this guy made a little song out of the idea of like, stop saying the words, what else can possibly happen in 2020? Cause you're basically uh, egging on the universe. <laughs> uh, that's, <laughs> and, uh, 
fair. That's <laughs> I fair. had to laugh at it. I was like, oops, guilty. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a collective kind of um, exhaustion that I'm, I'm feeling and gathering from conversations I have with clients. And, um, you know, it is this feeling of what else. And there is a part of me that feels like um, I have to continue to come back to this real understanding that there is so much learning to be had in this. And every time I feel that sort of fatigue or overwhelm or, um, you know, the feeling of wanting to throw my hands up, I have to recalibrate myself in the work and say, okay, what else, but not what else can happen. What else as in what else is there to learn or what else can I take away from this? Um, yeah. You know, how else can I grow and stretch? Yeah. That's a wonderful perspective. For me, it's also, and I wonder if it's similar for you, it's a reminder, um, myriad reminders of this idea that like we we can control only so much, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of these things that are giving us, you know, bringing on real grief and, and real difficult emotions and feelings are things that we haven't experienced before, certainly, but they're also things that we just don't have control over. So how do we, yeah, how do we learn from that particular aspect of it? I mean, what I would say if I was working with a client in that it's, it's really, um, it's more about expanding your ability to tolerate it. Right. So Mm. if there's not really like a, um, this is how you handle it, or this is how you do it better. It's more just, um, okay, as humans, it's, this is not any one particular breed of human. We're just all the same in the sense that we don't do well with the unknown. We don't do well with change, um, which is hilarious considering the only constant we have on this universe is change. Right. Uh, kind of some universal joke, I suppose. <laughs> but, you know, when I'm working with people, it's really about, okay, well, you feel lost in this, um, you know, inability to kind of get your footing. So what does that, what does that feel like for you? What does that bring up? Um, can we get still in the sensation of the overwhelm? Can we allow that to kind of wash over us um, and experience the real reality that we're not going to die from it? Um, yeah. And I, and I say that maybe that's the wrong word choice because, you know, there are people dying. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I guess, worthy of being said, but it's this idea that we're not going to die from feeling and experiencing the sensation of the anxiety that comes from lack of control, right? And the more we allow ourselves to, to get still and tap into what that sensation is for us, um, slowly those boundaries get wider and wider and, and that's our resiliency growing, right? Yeah, that was such a good point. It, it's like we... We're at this, we start at this point where we're, you know, maybe there's fear there. There's, we, we, we're scared to jump into that place, but we can do that and we do that. And then when we do that, we, yeah, we, we grow our resilience. And then it becomes this thing where we recognize even before, I mean, I'll speak for myself, I'll recognize before getting into a situation where I, I've been before. And then I, um, I'm like coming in with, no armor. I'm coming in with an awareness. I'm coming in with uh, a recognition that I've been there before and, and it gets easier. It gets right. easier over time. Right. Well, there's like this um, understanding or remembrance, like, um, you know, it's almost muscle memory in a sense mm. where you're like, yeah. oh, I've done this. Um, and I remember how this ends. I don't die. Um, yeah. I remember that it's painful, but I do remember that I don't die from that pain. And so the more we can train ourselves in that way and build that tolerance, you know, the, 
and off the quicker we get through it actually, um, to give people, you know, a little bit of hope. Cause I, I do like to tell people all the time, I half jokingly when somebody says, well, how do I fix this or how do I get over this? And usually my response is you don't. <laughs> and mm. I, and I, and I say it with a smile, but you know, a lot of clients are like, oof, God, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> but you don't, you know, I mean, what you do do is that you get through it a little bit quicker and, and, uh, it doesn't maybe take you to your knees in the same way that it did the, the time before. Hmm. I, it just made me think of, um, I've been thinking about, I see a lot and I'm sure you see a lot of it and being in this sort of mindfulness therapy, wellness space. I, I sometimes bristle at the, the Instagram message or the, the mindset that says like, you know, learn from this or, I mean, and, and this is what we're saying, but like this, I don't know. I, I have a hard time. Like sometimes I, I guess what I'm getting at is like, sometimes I just want to wallow in it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I just want to like thrash around and be upset. And, and I sometimes bristle at the sort of like, um, I don't know, overly positive or overly like do this thing, do this thing, check those boxes. You're great. Crush it now. Um, I, I want to crush, you know, I, I want to crush all of them. Like I, <laughs> like it makes me upset. Yeah. I, I don't know why I thought about that, but um, it just made me think about it. Well, I think it's invalidating um, mm. and, and that can feel very upsetting. And I, I actually think there's two things at play here that you're talking about. One is uh, that we try really hard as, you know, again, this is a normal human behavior to try to make sense of things. Um, and sometimes we do it too quickly. And so we have this idea that if this is where rumination comes from, right, this idea of like, going over something over and over and over and over in your mind, um, and saying like, Oh, if I had said it this way, or if I had, if I had done something different, like if you have an argument with somebody, you go over every detail in your mind of how you could have said it differently. Um, it's because we're wired to try to make sense of things. Um, and if things make sense, then they fit into our narrative, uh, better, more easily, more comfortably. Um, and so what happens is we do try almost to skip over the, the part that is the, messy, um, painful, doesn't make sense, darkness, and go right to the packaged pretty with a bow on it. Right. Um, unfortunately, you actually can't make sense of things without going through the messy part. So yes. logically, your cognitive brain might say, oh, well, this is, this is what I learned from it. A, B, C, one, two, three. Um, but my not only my gut, but in my experience as a therapist would say that uh, bet your bet your booty that that will come back in some way, shape, or form because you probably didn't learn the lesson you were supposed to learn uh, mm. if it seemed that simple, cut and dry. So yeah. I would say yes, it's super important to allow yourself to thrash around and be aware, obviously, that there's a there's a difference between wallowing and then like staying there for too long. Yeah, um, you know, and that's important to obviously know what that line looks like, and I and I think that's partly what therapy is so good at helping us do. Uh, staying in that space safely and then also reminding us to come up for air sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I would say that's part one. And then I guess not to go on too long about it, but part two, I think that I pulled out of what you said is this idea that I, I tend to get on a bit of a soapbox about, because um, I feel similarly to you, of what we call spiritual bypassing. Mm. So this idea of like, 
if you could see me right now, I'm kind of doing my little like mock peace sign fingers where it's like positive <laughs> vibes only, you know, um, yeah, sure. only surround yourself with positivity, you know, light workers, if you will. Um, and again, going back to what I said before, you, you can't be a light worker, uh, without also clearly seeing, clearly embracing the darkness because without dark, there is no light. Um, and so mm. in so many ways, especially in, I think in the wellness world and social media, there's a lot of this spiritual bypassing happening, which again, is not actually learning or integrating anything. Um, it's just gl- glossing over. Yeah. Uh, thank you for clarifying a lot of that. I, I hear you and I, I feel that same frustration. Like recently I was reading and then listening to this, this podcast called Conspirituality. Mm, yeah. And, I've, I've been told about this. I need to go and actually listen to it. Well, and the latest episode is with Sean Korn, yep. <laughs> uh, right? And she talked a lot about the sort of Venn diagram of QAnon and yeah. like the wellness space and yoga, mm-hmm. which is just fascinating <laughs> and deeply upsetting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and another piece of it for me is this, well, it's, it's, I, I think it's it's lacking the curiosity and and real authenticity that that is required of doing the work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also attached in my mind, and I wonder if you feel the same. It's attached to capitalism and you know the corporate sort of world that that just like me as like this you know punk rock kid I was mm-hmm. you know and and wants to say fuck you to the man like that that really is a thorn in my side, that piece of it. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, I think you're spot on. I think that it also, um, you know, it plays so much into, again, a very real human experience of fear. Mm. Um, and when we get into a place of fear, um, about the unknown, about what's happening in our world, um, we really tend to, in our psyches, shrink back into this place of being children and, and looking for and searching for, whether it's a father figure or a mother figure, it's just archetypal, um, someone to rescue us, someone to tell us what to do, someone to give us the answers, someone to make us feel better. And so this is why you see a lot of people, um, you know, falling into the trap of cults and falling into the trap of um, kind of the dogma of certain uh, political figures, um, not just in this country, I mean, worldwide. Yeah. Uh, this is why... You know, um, you'll see governments take over in such a sweeping way, and then all of a sudden, people blink their eyes and they're like, "Wait, wait, wait! What happened?" Well, they they offered you something, they promised you something, they promised you that they would take care of you and they would take that load off your shoulders. You wouldn't have to be responsible now for doing all of the work. Um, somebody's there to kind of hold you metaphorically, right? As as a right. parent would, and say, "It's okay, I've got this." Um, and so I think that archetypally we're, we're looking for that. Um, mm. and it's, and it can be dangerous. And, and I think you're right. I think the capitalism side, what I see is shopping and capitalism is, is the same for most of us as drinking social media, video gaming, gambling, whatever your kind of addiction might be. Sugar, um, shopping is the same. Capitalism is the same. You know, we, we've been fed this, this steady diet of everything's okay. Just keep buying. Um, and if you keep spending money and shopping and surrounding yourself with things and everything will work out. Right. So it's all kind of connected. I don't know if that really made sense. It, it feels like it's just one kind of gobbledygook. <laughs> yeah. Gobbledygook is a good, is a good, is a nice euphemism <laughs> yeah. for it. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 
I, I appreciate that. Um, so you mentioned uh, sort of being a kid, and I'm I'm curious about Vanessa as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, I, I would actually love to hear, like, when you think back on your childhood and, and early adult years, early teenage years, are there moments that kind of stick out in your noggin as being sort of pivotal sort of self-actualization moments or just pivotal parts of your mental health journey that you want to share? Mm. Oh, that's a big question. Um, you know, I think when I think about like my journey, it, for me, it really doesn't start until I was in my mid twenties. Um, mm. I feel like leading up to that was just a lot of, um, kind of like Legos being placed and stacked and <laughs> clicking into gear. And then, you know, at around 25 was when I started like dismantling the the little towers and, and buildings that I had created with those Legos and actually inspecting them and questioning why they were built that way. Sure. Um, so as far as like my actualization, I would say mid-20s. But, you know, as far as the upbringing, I think, and, and how it all plays into my story, at least, is... Um, you know, I was raised by a single parent, single mom, um, and I had a much younger brother and sister. My brother is actually 10 years younger than me. My sister is 16 years younger than me. So wow. when I was 10 and he was born and my mom was, you know, bartending to make ends meet kind of thing, I did a lot of the parenting. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and we, and we struggled with money and we bounced around a lot and moved a ton and all the things. And so I, I was able now on the other side of it to see what that does, I think, to a kid. Talk about being uncomfortable with change and loss of control, right? That's one of the things I've always struggled with. Um, mm. But turning 25 and realizing, I guess, that I was really angry for no reason. Um, and I, I just couldn't put my finger on it. And finding my way to my first therapist, um, who kind of opened my eyes to so many things and started me on my journey, uh, realizing what codependency was at 25. And now it's kind of become like a mission of mine to, mm. to help other people through it. Um, but yeah, I mean, 25, it's like, that's my pivotal year. And, I, and it's a little bit about that return to Saturn, I think for me, that time period in my life. And um, everything just starting to light bulbs popping. And, and like I said, dismantling those Lego buildings. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Uh, that picture of the Lego, because it's true, we do so much building uh that's based that that needs to be torn down right and it's often based uh on a foundation that's uh faulty a little faulty right right? what what were those early lego pieces about like what how were you building your identity before you realized i need to i need to really look at this I mean, I think for me, you know, my mom was the center of my universe because it was just her and I for so Mm. long. And so I think my identity um, was really created and formed around how can I please her? How can I be Mm. the best kid ever? How can I um, take some of the stress off of her plate because she was always so stressed out? How can I be helpful? How can I serve? Um, And how can I be good? you know? Mm. And so I think that when, and, and again, this is not, well, I shouldn't say again, I haven't really said this, but I think for a lot of us, it's hard for many and my experience to get to a place of being able to articulate something like this, because we have this really deep rooted shame or guilt around. Um, if I talk about these things, it means that I'm saying that my parent was bad or, or it makes me a bad kid or an ungrateful kid. 
Uh, and a lot of what we do in therapy is is kind of challenging that idea and, and realizing that, um, you know, your parents did the best they could with what they had. doesn't make them horrible people. It makes them wounded as well and struggling. Mm. Um, so both truths can exist at the same time, right? Like Indeed. your parent cannot be evil and what you went through was hard for you. And it created some, you know, not so great personality quirks, <laughs> if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that was the, really the construct and that's a lot of what I've tried to dismantle, I think in my adult years has been this overarching, uh, story that I have constructed around, I need to serve and produce and do, um, and be good and amicable and don't rock the boat and be nice and all these things, um, and how that's carried itself into my adult relationships and adult life, right? So I think that's it. I mean, I, I could give you a million examples of how, but that I think is kind of the overarching, um, yeah. you know, thesis of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I relate to some of that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the the people-pleasing part, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, have you taken the Enneagram? You know, I have, and God, it was so long ago that I forget the number. <laughs> I, I want to say I'm I'm the one that's the like the producer, I think, which mm, makes okay. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. the helper type yeah. two. Um, so I, I relate to the the people pleasing piece of it, and I I definitely found that in sort of my trying to to, to please my mom and mm-hmm. and and dad both. You know, early on for sure, that was like a piece of like that that dynamic. Um. So when, talk to me about like some of those early therapy experiences, like what did that feel like? Like, cause I know for me it was, uh, certainly maybe a year or two of, uh, denial and yeah. like, fuck you, don't talk to me that way. And, you know, it was like, uh, you know, denial. How was it yeah. for you? Um, I think because I was older when I went, um, yeah. I think I was ready uh, mm. I think my denial was actually my early twenties, um, you know, thinking that I, I was happy and thinking I had it all sorted out and, and partying, which, you know, most kids do in their early twenties, but, um, doing a lot of partying and doing a lot of things that I see now were ways of trying to like tap into something or find something inside of myself. Um, uh, you know, a lot of dating, a lot of sex, all the things, um, mm trying to ignite some kind of aliveness in myself, um, but looking for it externally, right? Yeah. Um, and again, talk about socialization. That's what we're socialized to do is look for that life outside of ourselves uh, in things and people. So I think for me, by the time I went at 25, I was so ready. Um, and and gratefully, I, I am grateful rather than that the person that I found was pretty much exactly who I needed at that time. Uh, and she was gentle and yet tough and she, which was what I kind of needed. And, and just like she broke me open, um, and she did it in a very soft and gentle way, but man, she broke me open. And mm. I remember like 10 minutes into the very first time I ever met her, um, she like dropped some truth bombs on me and just asked me a couple questions that I just remember like spending that entire weekend kind of on the couch reading and crying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, for me, it was, it was all at once. It was like this. I went to therapy. I started therapy. I started yoga. Uh, and I kind of started like my seeking, I think, all at the same time. And so it was wow, quite a whirlwind. Um, yeah. It's a lot of change. Yeah, it was. It was. And I was in a new relationship at the time, which in hindsight, I recognize was um, probably one of the biggest teachers to me because it was um, 
you know, ended up in an engagement and it was a relationship with somebody while, um, you know, at his heart is a good person, uh, really struggled with um, addiction mm. and, uh, you know, just Peter Pan syndrome, I think a bit of it. Mm. Um, and, and being the codependent that I am, but not really knowing it at the time, I think I realized now like, damn, that was my, my, one of my greatest lessons was, was that mm. relationship, you know, and I'm grateful for it. Were you at like enabling his, uh, addictions? Yeah. In ways I didn't realize that was even considered enabling, um, yeah. you know, and just, just him activating my codependency and, and, you know, me activating all his stuff and just us kind of walking around being just walking projections, I think. And, mm. um, but not knowing it at the time, obviously. Right. We never do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hindsight is wonderful. Mm-hmm. When you, uh, did you make the decision to go to therapy or was there a uh, sort of a, a particular sort of thing that happened or did you get sort of guidance from friends or was it just like, I need this? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I have a, um, somebody who is a very close friend, actually, I would say like my best friend for 10 plus years who we recently, um, kind of, I guess, parted ways, uh, now I wonder if that was kind of her point and purpose in my life this whole time, but she had started, uh, going to see this woman and we were roommates at the time. And I remember her saying to me one day, like I remember sitting at a restaurant and her being like, you're just like, you're angry. You're, you're always angry. Like you seem like you're just always pissed off about something. And I don't know. I just wonder why that is. And, and then I just remember her kind of giving me her information and saying, you know, maybe you should just, just see what it's about. Like maybe just talk to her. Um, and I don't remember putting up a fight. I kind of started being like, yeah, okay. You know what? That makes sense. And I think that is a good thing to do. And thank God I did. I, like I said, I never fought it. It just kind of landed in my lap, you know? And, um, I was ripe for it. I think I was, I was real pissed off at that age. (laughs) (laughs) I, I relate to that. I, I think my anger was, I mean, maybe you, maybe you know this as a therapist, like anger seems to be like, um, a default Mm -hmm. emotion. Right. And for me, it was like the anger that came out of not really realizing I had depression and these types of things I wasn't really addressing. Well, I think that's huge. And I'm glad that you said that because what I've learned on my journey, and actually I only learned this pretty recently, um, for as long as I've been on this path, but that also anger irritability, short temperedness, all these things, um, in many ways can actually be depression and anxiety, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, I think so many of us see them as separate things like anxiety is here. Depression is here. Anger is here. But, um, if we're not allowing ourselves to put words to things or feel certain things, it's, it's going to come out one way or another. And if anger or irritability or whatever is something that we've always felt comfortable tapping into, um, then that is going to probably be the release valve that our, our psyche goes to. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that, that this is circling back to what we were talking about, about spiritual bypassing and this kind of like positive vibes only uh, crew that's out there. There's so much danger in that because um, anger and I'll say negative emotions, even though I don't really believe that categorization, right? But And negative emotions can be such huge flags for us um that mm. if we're trying to push them away and not look at them and not feel them we're missing a lot or we can potentially miss a lot yeah i i often like to look at it through the lens of the universe mm-hmm. right and by that i mean the universe is 
wonderfully and overwhelmingly complex and nuanced and beautiful, right? And overwhelming and scary, right? And the same is true of our mindfulness or our me- mental state and our emotions, right? It's, it's, it's a tapestry. And, you know, you said it before, like we can hold numerous truths mm-hmm. at once and the it's not binary, right? And all these things that we need to remember when we're doing our healing work. Right. Well, that's usually what we say, um, you know, in the therapy world, we talk about this idea of like, what's a standard for like solid, healthy kind of mental health, like mm. your emotional landscape. And typically you'll have a cross between resiliency Um, so, you know, the more resilient you are and also this idea of being able to hold multiple conflicting truths. Um, and so when somebody is able to do that and it's not easy, I mean, even I struggle with it still, right. I've been doing this work for God knows how long, but when you're able to get to a place where you can hold conflicting truths and you have a bigger, wider resiliency kind of, um, capacity that that's what we say, like that is the, the symbol of mental health, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about codependency a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's certainly something that I know a little bit about. I, I don't know if I, I don't believe I, I struggle with codependency or have tendencies toward codependency. So Vanessa, for you, like, can you tell the listeners a little bit about just what it is and maybe some signs of codependency? Yeah. I mean, first I'll say that the fact that you struggled or struggle with people pleasing, um, people pleasing actually is one of the pillars of codependency. So, oh, well, there you go. Yeah. So I would actually challenge. And, and the reason why I say this is because I think um, codependency as a word has really been misunderstood in a lot of ways. And, and mostly just because the research is um, new-ish in mm. the sense that I think the old guard, the old way of looking at codependency is very black and white. It's like addict codependent. Mm. Um, and you know, you need to be in some kind of relationship with somebody who has an addiction in order to have codependency on the other side. And I would say not just in my own experience and my own working with clients, um, but also like the research and everything now, I would say that's not the case. I mean, that is one component. Um, but the very kind of pithy definition that I use when I'm teaching or when I'm talking to clients is just as simple. Um, if you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good. Mm. So wow. in its simplest form, it's my emotional state is based on your emotional state. Yeah. Right. And so you can see how people pleasing, right? Fits yeah. into that that definition. So I am people You called me out, yeah. Vanessa. How <laughs> dare you? This is my show. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing on like so many people. Um, you know, I do this one-on-one class and I, I do this little quiz with people. And I always say at the end, you know, how many yeses did you did you answer? And most people are shocked when it's like more than half. Um, and I say like, there's a laundry list of what I would call codependent behaviors. Um, and each of us, let's say there's 30 on this list, you know, I might struggle with five, you might struggle with a totally different five. Um, mm. And in a relationship, in, in relationship A, I struggle with these three more. And in relationship B, I struggle with two others that maybe weren't even in my top five. Like, it really is all about um, the relationship, how we interact with each other, what what kind of gets triggered and stirred up by that relationship. Um, and so, yeah, like in its simplest form, it's when your emotional state is somehow connected to somebody else's emotional state. Mm. Have you ever read any uh, Byron Katie? 
I have. It's been a while, actually. She was one of the first people I would say in my, in my mid-20s that I, I poked around in. Um, mm. Go back and reread some of her stuff now. A different perspective when you get a little older, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I bring it up because I was, I, I was yesterday on a walk, I started her book, Loving What Is, and mm-hmm. she talks a lot about uh, our attachments to our thoughts. Yeah. Right. And, and how being, how like thoughts and our attachment to those thoughts are like two very different things. Mm-hmm. And made me think of that when you, when you were talking about codependency specifically. Um, okay. I, like, I have, like early on in the book, she was, she, she, um, I was listening to the book, the audio book, and she had on stage, uh, um, this guy who came on and he, the, the work it's called the work mm-hmm. uh, or inquiry is what her, her, um, if you go to the work.org, you can mm-hmm. learn more about it, uh, listeners, but she had someone on stage and this guy came on stage and he was talking about, uh, how he feels sad and, um, frustrated that his his parents and his family d- don't understand him. Mm-hmm. And the first question is, uh, is this true? And she asks this of him and he's he kind of like mm, pauses. He, he doesn't have an answer, right? And the second question is, can you absolutely know that that is true? Mm. And he's like, I don't know. And then the third question is, like, I think, what would it be without that thing being true or something mm-hmm. like that? And it, and then it's like, she turns it around essentially. And the, mm-hmm. the idea is like, um, allowing things to be what they are. Mm-hmm. And she gets to this point in this specific case where she reminds him that like, people judge, like that's, that's a thing that humans do. Right. And how, like, um, Allowing that to be and allowing our sort of interpretations of reality to just kind of be because it's reality. Like there's a certain, um, I don't know. I just found it kind of profound in, in terms of, in terms of like letting go of these, um, like, cause feelings and emotions are so loaded, right? They're so loaded with so much stuff. And if we can kind of like try to break down our attachment to them, um, it's huge. I feel like I'm going on a major tangent, but it just made me think about it. Yeah, no, I don't think you are. I mean, I think it's this idea of being, um, you know, it's really mindfulness 101, right? It's this Mm. idea of kind of observing what is without judgment. Um, and this idea that, uh, you know, suffering, you can have pain without suffering, right? And suffering comes from attachment. So suffering comes from an attachment to, um, judging something, meaning categorizing. It should be this way. It shouldn't be this way. This is good. This is bad. Um, rather than just allowing it to just be whatever it is. Mm. Uh, and to your point, humans judge, right? It's, it's how we've survived this long. Um, and we need to be kind of judging what's good, what's bad, what's dangerous, what's safe in order to survive. So a little bit of why this is so tough is that we are actually going against kind of primitive wiring, right? Mm. Um, but, but this is, and, and also it kind of toes, ties back into this idea of codependency, what we were saying, um, you know, there's very real reasons why we develop codependent behaviors. And it's, it's, again, it's wiring. Um, you know, we're emotional and social and, um, you know, relational creatures. And so if I learn very early on that when mom is in a bad mood, I get it, you know, I get taken out, you know, I get yelled at, or, um, you know, I get screamed at or whatever. Um, I'm going to learn really quickly. I need to do whatever I can to keep mom in a good mood. 
Mm. Um, and so that's where that, that stems from pretty early on. And you can see how it is an attachment to, um, not just allowing mom to be whatever mom is, right? Like whatever mom is experiencing in that moment can be hers over here with a boundary around it. And I can be over here with my own boundary around it. Um, that's a very simple way of putting it. Cause again, we're relational creatures, right? Um, and I, as a, especially as a child, I need that positive um, love, that positive affirmation, that positive reinforcement to actually thrive. Um, and I'm going to seek out love and acceptance in any way I can. So we learn kind of these, um, you know, uh, bad habits, if you will, pretty quickly when we're young, and then it follows us into adulthood. So it, it is all connected. Like I can see how you feel like it's a tangent. And yet mm-hmm. all of these kind of theories all do intertwine in some way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can see, it, uh, you know, being a, a child who is, you know, sort of codependent, right? Who's in that space. Like that seems to be like a very, like much a survival mechanism right. in in a lot of ways, right? Like, cause right. as a child, like speaking of like having no control, you're sort of at the, the, the whim of your parents, right? And to avoid unsafe or scary situations at all costs seems to be the path. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. and you know, what ends up happening in a lot of codependence is that um, I like to use the word scraps. Like we, we take the scraps that we can find as far as um, like what love feels and looks like. And so this is why mm. in, in not everybody, but in a lot of codependence, you'll see them in relationships with people that it's very um, lopsided. Right. Um, yeah. Not just romantic, but friends, family, whatever, even work relationships where they're doing all the work, they're, you know, running circles around the other person emotionally, whatever, um, and not expecting the other person and are not setting boundaries, right? Um, and a lot of that is because we've been trained that whatever we get is is good enough. And so we we look for these scraps. And so it's really hard to untrain someone that you deserve more than scraps. And also, what does that feel like? Because we don't even know. Right. Um, and so part of this work is actually saying like, um, you know, what would it look, feel, sound like if I was actually in a 50, 50 dynamic? Um, but also I have to show up differently in order to have that 50, 50 dynamic. Right. You can't keep showing up the same way. Mm-hmm. And it is like, that is the scary part, right? Is like, you don't know what it feels like. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit of trusting yourself and having confidence in yourself and trusting a partner or a friend or whoever it may be in that relationship. Well, and they, they might do exactly what you're f- afraid of them doing and they might, right. Be, um, yeah. you know, and, and that's a huge risk again, as relational creatures, it's a huge risk to take, right. Um, to, to risk potentially somebody walking away. Um, mm. and again, we learn this, when we were young to your point, it's a survival strategy, right. Um, that also helps people understand, like, it's not your fault. You know, you developed these survival and coping strategies for a reason. Um, and now they're not working anymore. And that's great. And so now we get to understand and learn, like, thank God I was able to adapt in this way. But now I'm at a pivot point in my life where I get to start undoing some of this stuff and um, start to seek out more satisfaction and authenticity in my relationships. Mm. But that doesn't come without work. That doesn't come without blow-ups that doesn't come without probably some people leaving along the way yeah how does codependency still show up for you today oh all the time in every way (laughs) (laughs) i mean can you give me an example (laughs) yeah so um i 
so in my relationship now and, you know, I mean, thank God I'm in a relationship with another therapist, right? So hmm. it's a lot of constant talking about things, which I'm not only a codependent, but I'm also an avoidant attachment style. So it's, it, which is an interesting combination, let me tell you. Um, but I will, uh, again, not rock the boat, right? So mm. um, when you were saying earlier about trusting yourself, I think actually one of the pillars of codependent work um, in the very beginning is actually not just trusting yourself, but actually figuring out what is that voice even saying? Like, not not ex- actually ex- expressing my needs, asking for what I need and want, but what is it that I even need and want? Yeah, um, because for so much, so many of us, for so much of our lives, it's always been about what does that person want and how can I make sure they're happy. Um, that we don't ever kind of sharpen that knife. We don't know what that is, and so um, for me, I'm still learning that. So uh, you know, a tangible example would be something is said or done or not done uh, that upsets me, irks me, kind of ruffles my feathers. My natural tendency is to stuff it down, get annoyed, um, sit on it for a while, not say a word, and then eventually kind of allow it to dissipate. Mm. Um, shocker, it doesn't dissipate, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. It builds and builds and builds, uh, i.e. resentment. Um, but that's been my MO my whole life is like, don't say anything because conflict is bad. Right. Um, and so what I see it, how I see it show up now. And like I said, thank God he's a therapist. Cause a lot of times he'll say, you know, what's happening? Like he'll pull it out of me. Um, and I mean, I've gotten better at it now, but I'll still do that. And I still find myself, it might take me a day. Uh, whereas before I would never say it. Maybe now I'll say it like a day or two later. Hey, you know that thing that happened the other day? It really upset me and we need to talk about it. Uh, and that's huge for me. Um, wow. w- would it be ideal that I did it in the moment? Yeah, sure. But any progress is progress. So uh, if it's a day later, then it's better than nothing at all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. I I think so many of us, so many of us can relate to the feeling of like, not wanting to rock the boat and just mm-hmm. like, and, and it's like, there's a piece of it for me specifically. It's like, I don't want to rock the boat because I don't know what to say, or I don't mm. have the words to like really stake yes. my claim here. Right. And, and it so feels awkward. like, it just feels like, uh, I'll just, I'll just keep it here inside because I don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're, yeah. I, you are articulating what I hear from so many clients. Um, yeah. And myself. Yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the, I guess, strategies that I've given people and use myself is, um, and this kind of ties into perfectionism, uh, which is another kind of codependent trait, which is uh, you don't need to have it figured out or it doesn't need to sound perfect for it to be voiced. And so one of the kind of characteristics of codependency is just what you said. I don't really know how to say it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take it over here to the side by myself and I'm going to sort through it. I'm going to ruminate on it. I'm going to turn it over. I'm going to try to make sense of it as best as I can. Um, And then I'm going to put a bow on it. And the part of it that I feel like is worthy or makes sense to share, I might bring back over to you and then, and then let you know about it. Mm. Um, That's not intimacy. Intimacy Mm. in a relationship, authenticity in a relationship is actually saying to somebody, Here's the thing. Something's bothering me. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know how to articulate it. Let me be messy. Let me stumble over my words. Let me maybe start crying and I don't even know why I'm crying. Maybe it's because I'm angry. Maybe it's because I'm sad. Like basically just go down the rabbit hole and allow that person to see you in the rabbit hole, in the muck, thrashing around to use your language. 
um, and sorting it out with them as witness or maybe even as support, that's actually being intimate in a relationship with somebody. Again, friend, romantic, otherwise, whatever. Um, and that is really scary for us because that actually means that somebody has to see us when we're not at our best. Yeah. Wow. Fuck yes to this. Mm-hmm. Cause like that is such a, I mean, you're blowing my, my mind right now. I, cause I, even in my marriage, I, we've been married for over 10 years, Vanessa. I'll find myself, uh, not saying the thing because I don't know what to say or mm-hmm. how to say it or how to say it just right, you mm-hmm. know, and that's, mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And, and that's you. codependent, right? I mean, if yeah. you think about it in its simplest form, it's like, I have to say it just right because if something is, is wrong about it and you get upset, then I'm going to internalize that. Right. Right. Like that means I'm bad somehow. Yeah. Um, wow. And so what I'll say to clients is, you know, um, preface the conversation, you know, say to somebody, I don't really know what I'm trying to say right now, but like, can you sit with me and let me figure it out? Can you, can you sit with me while I stumble through this? Um, and if that's too hard, and sometimes even for me it is, uh, I'm a big proponent of writing, and there's plenty of reasons why journaling and writing are so important. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of it has to do with language is our secondary processing tool, uh, and so language meaning writing or speaking. And so you know, the the emotion is in your body; it's a felt sense. Um, but if you don't actually use language to work it out, you don't ever actually process the emotion. Yeah. Or the feeling. Um, and so for some of us who maybe it feels too scary to say, Hey, let me thrash around in this with you watching me. That's okay. In the beginning, especially go over here, write it out, um, be messy on paper, and then maybe pull some bullet points out and bring that. I always say no shame in my game. I've brought bullet points into a conversation before because <laughs> if I don't, I know I'll lose my, my way and, and I might lose track and whatever. So maybe that's the, the starting point. Maybe that's where you begin. Yeah. Um, and again, resiliency, build your resiliency to be able to sit more and more in the discomfort of maybe not having it perfectly bolded next time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. And I, I, an important point is the writing piece. Cause I, it, it goes back to Byron Katie. She says, it's like our minds will, will trick us in mm. a way, you know, so put it, put it to paper. Right. Um, I think is very important. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that. So you are, a mother now. You're a mom. I am. <laughs> which is amazing and beautiful and wonderful. And I wonder for you, how has that been, you know, considering, uh, you know, growing up as, you know, growing up being sort of having this codependent relationship with your own mom and, and, and some tricky feelings there. How has that been? Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I had her into the, into the pandemic. So that in itself has been you know, totally screwing with my mind and all the things, but yeah, I never wanted kids. Um, mm. my whole life, I was always very adamant about that more, mostly because I always felt like, you know, I was kind of a secondary parent, especially to my brother. And I had kind of felt like I, I've raised my kids. I'm done. Um, right. and I, I think also I see it now with a little bit more kind of empathy to my younger self, where I think I realized when I left home, I just, I really wanted to be, uh, selfish and like only care about myself and have a lot of time where I wasn't caretaking others. Um, it's understandable. Jokes on me. I was a codependent, so I was caretaking everyone and anyone in my path. I just didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I, I it's funny because I got to I don't know my mid thirties and I I met my partner who I'm with now and it's not this whole like oh when you meet the right person you'll know I didn't I didn't feel it like that. Um, 
we hadn't really been together that long. And I, I remember uh, I was on a meditation retreat for my birthday and I was my 35th birthday. And I remember sitting in my second day. So I was like deep in it. And all of a sudden I had this kind of feeling of, I want to do this with him. Mm. Um, and for me, the clarity that came around this was, uh, and I actually I verbalized this to my mom. I said, what feels different about him uh, than any other guy I've been with as far as this idea of children is, I know without a shadow of a doubt that his relationship with his child will have nothing to do with his relationship with me. Meaning him and I could part ways, him and I, it could get nasty, whatever, um, which I don't think it ever would. But, uh, and I know that he would be able to separate her from me. He would not punish her for something I did or the relationship going sour or whatever. Uh, and I've experienced personally, but also I've seen it happen a lot where that is not always the case. Hmm. Um, and so for me, that was kind of a big turning point. And so here I am, six months old. She is now seven months old. Um, and what a ride it has been. Um, <laughs> they are our tiny little mirrors. They are. <laughs> mm. I, yeah, I mean, we are mirrors for each other as humans, right? right? Um, I love that. And I love the distinction in that separation between, um, you know, the relationship with, yeah, with the, with the kid and the, the partner. I think that's crucial um, yeah. and, and so, so wise. I love that. That was my inner, that was my inner voice speaking. So <laughs> I'd like to take it. credit with my logical brain, but it definitely was not my logical brain. <laughs> <laughs> and what, so, you know, you obviously, um, having this kiddo at the, yeah, I mean, it's six months. It's been like six months of this mm -hmm. pandemic. Like that's, yeah, that's gotta be a, a weird fucked up, yeah. not fucked up, but just like mind boggling kind of thing. Like what, how has that played out and, and your, your mothering and, and, um, you know, all that stuff, your mental health? Well, I mean, it definitely has been a mind fuck. I mean, that is probably the best description of it. Um, you know, you expect, I guess you had this idea of, um, community, uh, at least I did going right. into this, um, and, and, what that's going to look like and, and your community, your support systems, you know, the other women in your lives who are mothers, even your family. Um, and so by nature, quarantine means you have nobody around you. Right. And so a lot of that was stripped away from me. Um, you know, my family lives on the East coast. So, uh, my mom was actually here when she was born. She had already been out here during, you know, before any of this stuff happened. Um, so she met her, obviously she was here for her first week of life. But outside of that, like my brother, my sister, nobody could come and, and meet her. Um, and none of my friends could be with me um, as support. And so as a new mom, that was, that was hard. I mean, thank God for technology, but that was, that was really hard. Uh, and so I think that it was also a real awakening for me and a realization of how much as a society we have, um, Oh, siloed ourselves off, I guess, right? Like I had this real mm. realization. I think she was only a few weeks old. And I remember calling, um, you know, somebody who's a mutual friend of your and mine, Danae, and essentially saying to her, we are not meant to raise children with just a mom and a dad. Like <laughs> who told us that this was a good idea? This is bullshit. And I remember yeah. just being like, we are supposed to be in a village. There is a reason why the whole, like, it takes a village is a, is a saying. Um, 
because this is not okay. Like two people cannot do all this alone. And especially in the beginning, it's really one and a half people because especially if you're breastfeeding all the things, it really is 90% mom, right? Right, right. Um, You're waking up with her in the night, all the things. And so I just remember being like, what did we get ourselves into? Like, how stupid are we (laughs) Um, that we decided to have this thing in the, you know, fifties where it was all about the nuclear family and moved to the suburbs. I was like, this was dumb. And so I've, I've worked through some of that or had to at least start to, um, you know, what did we get ourselves into? I don't know. I'm kind of like talking out this looming question for me as I'm saying it out loud. I don't have the answer, but that's definitely something that's come up. I think it's, I think it's a, uh, such a, an important line of thinking. It it goes back to like, you know, the primitive, right? Like our primitive wiring, you know, it's, we are meant to be together, right? Mm -hmm. We are meant to commune. We are meant to, to grow in connection with others. Like we, but it also goes back to our conversation around capitalism and, you know, American culture, we all we are also told that we need to do things alone and right. that we need to be this nuclear family and that this is what a family looks like and all these things that you know that keep keep telling us and keep reminding us or keep putting us into boxes right and so yeah like it's i think it's a beautiful realization and you're spot on it it does take a village it does take community and being um siloed from that because of a pandemic is shitty. Yeah. Super shitty. Yeah. And it, it definitely challenges. I mean, if you're in any way, somebody who struggles with codependent behavior, it it totally challenges that because, um, it just rears its head, right. It amplifies Mm. it, I guess is probably the best way to put it. And so, um, it was brought up in my face kind of multiple times over and over again. It still is. I mean, I think it probably will be for her 18 years under my (laughs) roof if no longer, um, where it's like, Oh, right. Like, I'm not alone in this. Like, oh, right. I actually should and can ask for help. Um, you know, oh, right. Like, it's not all me all the time. Um, you know, it's not. A, so it, 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 again, going back to like, there are mirrors, there are greatest teachers. I mean, it's not fun or comfortable, but I'm grateful for that. So just going back to, I think, what we were even talking about in the very beginning of this conversation, like, can I allow myself to name it and then soften into a place of, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm not judging it. I'm not trying to make it go away. I'm just sitting with the sensation of tightness in my chest around feeling overwhelmed or around feeling like I'm doing this by myself. And then using what you were talking about with Byron Katie, can I challenge the narrative? Um, You know, um, I think Brene Brown says the story I'm telling myself is. Right. So, you know, can I, can I get, can I feel what I'm feeling and then say, okay, the story I'm telling myself is that I have to do this all alone. Is that true? Mm. Yeah. Um, and just yep. keeping coming back to that because I could probably do that five, 10, 20 times a day if I, if I really keep my mindfulness up. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So talk to me about mindfulness a bit. Like this is an area that, I mean, you're a coach, a mindfulness coach, and mm-hmm. it's, it's an area that you clearly are, are passionate about. Like what, in particular, uh, do you love about it? You know, I think going back to like the start of my journey, um, I think for me, it was such a turning point, I guess, in 
allowing myself to release some of that like anger and kind of resentment and bitterness that I was walking around holding um, because I had never been asked or instructed to just stand still and and watch it and feel it and smell it and taste it and look at it. Um, Mm. And so there was a big relief in, oh, I don't have to fix it. I don't have to be perfect, which I always kind of tried to be, right? Um, There's not really anything for me to do, which is hard, which is probably why I liked it. Um, It's really just about me. It's it's the being, not the doing, right? Yes. And so I think especially for somebody like me who is more like type A, perfectionist, you know, I was a producer in advertising for 10 years in New York before making this career transition. So um, I'm very kind of, you know, left-brained, whatever. I think it really drew me in because there was a softening to it that I was like, oh, I've never done this before. This is hard and fascinating. And uh, it's a tool in my toolbox. And I actually think that's Mm -hmm. what sucked me in um, to start. And then all of the the wonderful kind of things that fall out of it were secondary beautiful things. (laughs) Yeah. I do like that you said tool in your toolbox because Mm -hmm. I I think mindfulness – sometimes and i'll i'll speak for myself can be this like uh, overwhelming thing right you think yeah. about it and it's just like oh like what is this like it it seems overwhelming i don't know what it is but if we think about it as another one of those tools for self honoring for self knowing for self actualization for healing you know uh as a tool just like breathing is a tool just like exercise is a tool just like yoga can be a tool you know just like therapy can be a tool. Like, I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Well, right. And I mean, I think that a lot of people have this perception that it is, you know, sitting in lotus position on a cushion for hours a day, meditating on your breath and clearing your mind and all the things we've heard. And I usually challenge that by saying that's not what it is at all. Um, I mean, if you have time to do a seated practice, by all means, it's great and wonderful. Um, I'm still struggling to find my way back to my seated practice because now I have a little baby, right? Um, Who has 20 minutes where they can actually sit in silence these days. But (laughs) Um, you know, I always say mindfulness is something you just thread into your life. Um, you know, next time you're, I, I always steal this quote from John Kabat-Zinn, who's kind of one of the leaders in mindfulness, uh, in, in the therapy world. And in, in that, in that way, he always says, next time you're in the shower, just check and see if you're in the shower. Mm. Uh, and so if you can implement little touch points throughout your day, where you're just stopping and checking and saying, am I actually here right now? Am I doing what I'm, what my body is doing? Am I actually doing it? Um, or is my brain somewhere else? Uh, and you bring yourself back to whatever actually is happening in that moment. So whether it's brushing your teeth, whether it's driving to work, um, whether it's walking your dog, whatever, and actually be present in that experience. So, you know, watching the leaves on the trees blow and smelling the breeze and and noticing how the light reflects off of them and just the nuances. Um, that's it. That's mindfulness. Uh, yeah. And so can you thread it through? Does It doesn't have to be a 20-minute seat of meditation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I try to bring a mindfulness practice into my running, right? right. I, I kind of turn it, you know, I, I'm not playing any music or anything and I, I just... Uh, listen to my steps, right? right. I, I smell the things. I hear the things. I try to kind of be as, as in the moment as possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, this is kind of an off the cuff question, but I, I've been thinking about it of late. Um, 
where do you see psychedelics play a role in psychotherapy or psychology sort of in the future? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I feel like I talk about it um, frequently, like with my partner, with a couple of friends of mine who are in this world, um, more from a curiosity perspective, because I mean, when I was younger, like, I did my fair share, <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> lie, <laughs> of fun times. But, um, you know, I wasn't doing it with the anticipation or the purpose of going deeper spiritually. So I, yeah. I there's a part of me that feels like I kind of wasted it. Not that I can't do it again. But, you know, you have a little bit less fear when you're a kid. Yeah. And what I have seen is that in, in friends of mine and, and people that I've even people that I've coached, um, and I won't say therapy clients of mine because I, I, from the board perspective, I don't think I'd go there. I don't, I can't go there legally, but, um, you know, experimenting with like, like microdosing, for example. Um, and what I have seen in their ability to manage, um, you know, manic phases, ADHD, depression, uh, with like the simplest, tiniest amount of like psilocybin, as an example, has been so fascinating. And I'm not saying like, everybody should go out and do it. But I'm saying there is a world that we do not really know and understand. Um, And it's, for me, it's just, it's, it's open, it's wide open, there, there's possibility. um, And that feels exciting. Uh, it's like a new horizon, right? It's like going out and exploring a new planet. Um, yeah. It shouldn't feel daunting and scary. It actually should feel exciting. And that, that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. That um, I feel the same way. I So just to be perfectly transparent, I, had, I took my first trip on psilocybin about a month ago mm-hmm. uh, in the woods. I was backpacking and it was... Uh, a profound experience. And my, I mean, I will just say as a disclaimer for all of my listeners and and speaking in regards of Vanessa being here, we're just two feely humans. We're not, I'm not an expert, clearly. Right. Vanessa's not here as a therapist. We're just having a conversation. Um, I, for me, the last month, my I've been lighter. I've been more positive. My depress—I have major depressive disorder. It's been far less, um, and I've been doing. I've been sort of doing a little bit of microdosing of psilocybin as well, as I think that's part of it. Um, so I like for my own sort of personal, like limited anecdote experience. Like uh, I am going to keep exploring because mm-hmm. I, I, I. I do believe that it's sort of part of the future and I, I hope it will, I hope it will be, you know, um, I know that, uh, what's his name? Um, Bessel van der Kolk is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a huge component or, or, or proponent of, of psychedelics for yeah. psychology. So, trauma, um, right. yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm into it. Well, I would, you know, to your point of us like not speaking as experts or anything, if I would bring it back to more like the depth psychology lens, which is kind of my background and where I try to pull things, right? So depth psychology, Jungian psychology, really being like the psychology of the soul. Yeah. Um, my curiosity about it is almost to say, you know, this curiosity that we have towards hallucinogenics, like 
there is something that we are grasping, there are trying to grasp, grasping for. There is something that we as human beings um, in some way are desiring. So we enter into this state. Uh, you know, we are we are by nature, like I was saying earlier, meaning-making creatures. Um, and mm-hmm. there is what Jung used to say, there's the religious or the um, spiritual aspect of the psyche. Um, religious, not necessarily being like structure organized, but just this, this spiritual component to our psyche that whether or not you believe in God is not about it. The reality is as, as a being, we, it's important for us to believe in something larger than ourselves. And that could just be earth and like how, Mm -hmm. you know, the magnets of the poles keep us and our feet firmly planted on this ground. And isn't that crazy? You know, I mean, it could be literally mother nature. Um, But just this knowing and understanding there's something out there that's larger than ourselves. What I would say is that nowadays, you know, 21st century, whatever, like we have gotten so pulled away from our connection to spirit, to Mm. earth, uh, to each other. Uh, And in so many ways, we are living, like I was saying earlier, these like siloed lives through screens um, very small worlds. And I mean, small, I guess, big in the sense that I can connect with you anywhere in the world, but also small and like, I'm not surrounded by actual community, um, that we are like hungry for so much. And I, I feel like that is actually a lot of the drive towards wanting to experiment with these drugs. And I think Mm. there's a great benefit medically when it comes to like depression and anxiety that we're going to continue to see. But my question and curiosity is always around the spiritual aspect. Like we're, we're looking for something we're craving, we're, we're searching. Um, and so that to me is kind of the driving force that I'm seeing anyway. Yeah, no, I, I feel that. And I, it's the same for me. And the reason why I brought it up is when you're talking about mindfulness and sort of being here now, right. And being like, for me, it, it is a practice of that. It, it's a mindfulness practice. It's a, uh, it's a reminder that, you know, we are connected. It's a reminder that we are connected to the earth. It's, it's a, it's a catharsis. It's a, it's a, a it can be a deep exploration for me. I did a great deal of crying and laughing Mm -hmm. and it was like this, you know, cosmic, um, wonderland, you know, and it, it, uh, and it's not to your point earlier about like, you know, doing it as a kid, maybe not at the right time. It's not a party drug. It's, it's a, it's a tool and maybe, maybe it's another tool right in our toolbox, you know? And, um, I, yeah, I just hope to see more of it for that reason, because to your point, I, I'm deeply saddened by the silos, you know, it's Mm -hmm. why I, I started feeling human. Like I want to see us grow as a community, you know? I'm tired of the bootstraps. Fuck the bootstraps. Right. Right. Like I, I don't want that. I want us to be together and connecting and growing because that's how we do it. That's, mm-hmm. that's where it's uh, the most rich, you know? Right. I mean, that's why, you know, it's, I'm grateful for people like you that are having these dialogues and expanding kind of the, especially, I mean, I know you and I talked about this a little bit when I were on my podcast, but this idea of like doing it from a man's perspective. Right. I mean, mm. Um, you know, culturally we're, we're so, uh, we're just so, our men are so inhibited and we put so many, you know, boxes and chains on, on the men in our culture. And so I think it's especially important that people like you are having these conversations and reminding people, men included, or or men, especially that it's okay to have these conversations. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and your partner is doing a wonderful job at that as well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, tell the listeners a little bit. You mentioned your podcast. Tell the listeners a little bit about your podcast, Cheaper Than Therapy. Yeah, so um, my very close friend, soul sister um, in this work, uh, we went to grad school together, Danae Salkin. Her and I decided, you know what, we're always having these kind of crazy, winding, hour-long conversations. Um, Why don't we just hit record and, and... bring them to other people, right? And so out of that was born Cheaper Than Therapy. Um, It's a bit of a combination of her and I talking therapy, talk, um, you know, interviewing people like yourself that are doing great work in this world, um, and also doing real sessions on air. So um, kind of pulling from some of what Esther Perel does on hers, but bringing people in for kind of like quick little coaching sessions. And so you get to see how our, how we work, how our minds work, um, what that might look like, and and the idea is to really like, you know, pull back the curtain, I guess, on what happens in the therapy room. Yeah, yeah, listeners, it's it's wonderful. It's uh, it's called cheaper than the therapy. I was a guest on the show. Uh, Danae is wonderful. Danae was a guest on Yumi Empathy. It's um, it's just another yeah, beautiful safe space on on the internet for your ear holes. I I think it's. It's incredibly healing. They have wonderful guests. And I do love the the sort of mixture of like the, the coaching call and the interview. That's like, I think, really special and unique. Thank you. Yeah, we um, we thought so too. We, and also it kind of feeds our, um, our inability to sit still in a way because we knew we would be, you know, it was like, let's change it up. You know, we'll get bored if we keep doing one. <laughs> So totally. This way, totally. Like, hey, what do you feel like doing this week? Oh, let's coach somebody. Okay, great. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, before we wrap up, uh, Vanessa, we always talk about our empathy heroes on mm-hmm. this show. So these are the people in our lives who are uh, deeply empathetic, compassionate, feely humans. Um, I'm going to go first to give you a moment to think about your empathy Please. hero. Uh, so I recently watched um, on HBO Max this three-part documentary series called Expecting Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's created by Amy Schumer, the comedian, oh, and yeah. mm-hmm. it documented her uh, her giving birth to her uh, little baby boy and that experience. And during that experience, her you know also taping her special and releasing her special and. I, I, I bring it up because it's it's actually I was crying openly, like weeping. It mm-hmm. was incredibly profound. She's deeply vulnerable in it. It's very funny, but it's also you see a different side of her uh, in this. It's just incredibly vulnerable um, through through the taping of this documentary series. She also her partner or her husband uh, finally as a 40 plus year old man gets a diagnosis of uh, autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. And that was very emotional. And it's just, it's really worth your time. Like it, it made me like, I liked Amy before she's very funny, but this really kind of um, made me sear in this bigger sort of light. And I, I really appreciated it. So uh, Amy Schumer is my empathy hero this week, and you definitely listeners should check out Expecting Amy. It's on HBO Max right now. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So you took it a different direction with giving people some people to look into. Well, you can take it wherever direction you like. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the first person that came up for me, obviously, was who I was just talking about, my, my partner in crime, Danae. Um, was also on Instagram as well, if you guys are interested, Danae Logan Selkin. She does some pretty amazing work, but uh, I would say her... 
she's the one that came up. Um, mm. I think first and foremost, just as somebody who I'm always striving to, um, not say not emulate, but just striving to be, I guess, yeah, I guess more like her, I guess emulate is the right word. Um, in the sense of there's such a real, um, ability to, uh, catch herself in judgment, question herself in judgment, be as open as possible. Um, this never ending kind of well of empathy, this, which is probably why I went to her first. Mm. Um, and so for me, I think that was, that was a person that came up when you when yeah. asked. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I share that Danae is a wonderful person and I, I'm so grateful to know her. Um, and I, I hope to, uh, you know, be able to hang out with her again in person and, and you some one of these days, you know, we're one not far days. from each other, you know, we one can of these hang days, out 2028 <laughs> when the pandemic, you know, <laughs> um, well, uh, Vanessa, where, where can the Feely humans out there learn more about the work you're doing, uh, and connect with you? Yeah. I mean, I'm on Instagram, uh, at Vanessa S Bennett, uh, B E N N E T T. Uh, and my website is vanessabennett.com. Um, and then obviously the podcast that you were talked about and, and I try to just kind of, um, you know, put everything out there and, and give as much content and I suppose support as I can to my community. Um, and I'm always like, I like to think of myself as a connector as well. So I'm always trying to like connect people to other people and other resources when I can, where I can. So I, I like this idea of just constantly sharing information, um, that I feel like is appropriate and helpful for others. Um, so yeah, I would say Instagram, my website. Lovely. And I love the, the sharing and connecting it. It like, it's a reminder. It's another reminder that we, we grow in connection with others. And mm-hmm. it's also a reminder that like, we don't have all the answers, right? right. We need to rely on others sometimes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for being a part of You Me Empathy. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I, I, I love this conversation. Yeah, likewise. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot. We have each other. It's You Me Empathy. Empathy. <laughs>